Good morning, everyone. A quick word on the tail of that is that if any of you are, have, uh, have, have made the decision to have an abortion, I just want you to know that this is a, a house that welcomes you. It's a house of healing. It's a house of acceptance, redemption, and all of the good things that God brings. And if you know someone in your family or a friend, I would hope that you could tell them the same, that Harvest Community Church is one that would love to see them in our midst. The last time I, I spoke, I shared with you all that I had a, a family member in jail. Uh, he was there for some time. And over the years of his incarceration, I had the opportunity to go visit him a few times. To be honest, I, I always hated it, though. And I loved, I loved him. I love him. And I was thankful to see him, but, but everything else I hated. Just driving up to the facility, it was, it was cold, concrete, razor wire everywhere, chain link, walls. And before you could go back into the facility, you had to go through a processing. And the guards were there to make sure you had the right clothes on, make sure you had the right verification, the right credentials. And you operated on their time schedule. Then when all the conditions were right, they would allow you in small groups to go back deeper into the facility, past the series of locked gates, fenced corridors, and you'd finally be able to meet the person you came to visit. And in this large meeting room, you couldn't put your hands below the tables. You could only give a brief hug. And I recall on the back wall, there were a number of vending machines with all sorts of food in them. Uh, but the prisoners, they weren't allowed to stand or access those vending machines. So you would stand up, you would purchase the items for the person and, and then give them to the inmate. And as you're talking, the prisoners' eyes, they are looking everywhere. They are on high alert, constantly assessing for threats. And the guards, they're watching just as closely. It was just this incessant feeling of anxiety and danger in the air. And I, I remember one conversation I had with this family member. He, he was talking about the mental and emotional state of those inside. He said depression was widespread and suicide was common. And not just with the prisoners, but with the guards as well. He told me there wasn't much hope. And when I would eventually leave, I just had these lingering questions in my mind. Is, is this place, is the darkness of this place somewhere your light can still shine, God? And can you still work in the heart of this person that I love? And I think we all collectively say, yes, you know, of course, duh. Those are easy questions. We believe in the Bible. But it's, if it is so obvious, then, then why did I and why do we collectively still have at, at times in our lives seasons of doubt, times of anxiety, moments of uncertainty? I think it's because no matter where your relationship with Jesus is, whether you've walked in this church for the first time in your life, and this is the first time you're hearing about Jesus, or you've had a relationship with him for half a century, 
We all, at some point, or some points, will ask the question, are there limits to what God can use for his purposes? Are there limits to his redeeming abilities? And just as I drove away from that jail, at the core of my unsettled spirit was this shred of doubt that maybe, just maybe, there, there were limits to what and where and how God could work. That maybe the darkness was just too dark. And this morning, the author of the book of Acts, Luke, he presents us a short story of light and dark. It's an incredible story. And despite my depressing intro, I'm actually really excited to share with you this morning what Scripture has for us. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 19, we're going to be there reading verses 11 through 20. So in this chapter, we find Paul still in Ephesus. He's on his third missionary journey. He's amidst what's going to be nearly a three-year stint in the city of Ephesus. And from Greg's message last week, we can see in verse 10 of chapter 19 that Paul stayed in Ephesus for over two years teaching about Jesus. And it says, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Not too shabby missionary work, you know, sweet conclusion to this section of scripture. And now we pick it back up again in verse 11. It says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. So our story begins, and we're immediately told who the main actor is. It's God. And what is he doing? Extraordinary miracles. And what is God's vehicle for such miracles? The hands of Paul. That's the theology of Acts right there. God doing extraordinary miracles through his people. But what's interesting about the way this story begins and will continue on is that Paul is not really talked about. The first verse of this story is the only time we'll actually see his name. Really, he's just the preposition to the main point of God performing these miracles. And this should catch our attention because for the last five chapters, the text has presented by Luke through what Paul is doing where he's going, who he's talking to, his travels, his acts. That, of course, is not what's going on here. And Paul, excuse me, Luke wants to make it abundantly obvious. This story starts off with immediate contrast. Luke is saying, I want to tell you a story where God did something of his own accord. Where Paul and I simply watched from afar in amazement. I want to tell you a story that only God can make happen. So Luke begins the story with these beautiful miracles of healing. He says in verse 12 that handkerchiefs or aprons were being brought to Paul, which were then taken back home to those sick. They were healing people. Evil spirits went out. And I don't know about you, but my scientific, non-believing in magic brain begins to fire and ask, okay, how, how does that actually work? Like, what's so special about Paul's touch? You know, how much handling of these kerchiefs did Paul have to do for the disease-killing power to be infused? Like, are we talking essential oils of Paul? Like, he would take that apron and draw it across his brow. Ah, essence of Paul. Here you go. That'll do the trick. Oh, thank you, Paul. Do you use doTERRA? Oh, 
Are you kidding me? Young living is the only thing I touch. (laughs) Didn't expect an essential oil joke this morning, did you? The logic of this healing power going from Paul's hands via a piece of cloth should cause you to look to other such situations in Scripture for answers. And I can think of two quick ones from the life of Jesus. The first is from Mark 5, starting in verse 25. You can turn there. It'll also be up on the screen. It says this, A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? Yet he looked around to see the woman who had touched who had done this. And the woman came, fearing and trembling, aware of what had occurred. She came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So here we have Jesus surrounded by a crowd of people, pushed up against him, his disciples trying to create space, keep him safe. Everyone is bumping into everyone. But amidst all this physical contact, one touch stands out. One gentle brush of Jesus' cloak was different. And Jesus tells us why. Daughter, your faith has made you well. The touch means nothing. It is only an outflowing, a a representation of what actually imparted the healing. Faith. The second uh, story I can think of, similar to what is happening in Ephesus, is from Luke's gospel in chapter 7. There we find Jesus teaching the people. And in verse 2 of chapter 7, we read this. It'll be up top here. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders, asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation and it is he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus, starting on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed, for I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled, turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So back in Acts, these pieces of cloth that Paul touched, and then great healing was done. It wasn't about the cloth. It wasn't about Paul being the one who touched them. It had everything to do with faith. Faith of Paul and the faith of those coming to him. Faith that God is able. Able to transcend distance and all logic to do the seemingly impossible. 
Now, this point will become quite apparent as the story progresses because in the next verse, we see a contrast to those faith-based actions. In verse 13, it says, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempting to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I order you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, if you're reading from the ESV or New King James, it likely says some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. So these are non-Jewish, excuse me, non-Jesus-believing Jews who traveled through the region and trying to cast out demons is, is their thing. These people were making a living off casting out demons or trying to anyway. And now they're in the area of Ephesus. You must have heard about this incredible evil spirit dominating power via the name of Jesus. So not wanting to be outdone, likely concerned about the potential loss of business to this Paul fella with his Jesus power, they decide to steal what they see is as the recipe to the ultimate demon domination. They figure all you got to do is say the magic words, Paul and Jesus. Let's see how this goes for them. Verse 14. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, was doing this. The evil spirit answered them. So we're presuming they've gone and they've used these words, right? The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? This is the point as an exorcist that you realize you're in trouble. And I wish I could have seen their faces. You know, I bet they walked into that room with the evil spirit feeling confident. Because these seven men, are, they're not just any old Jewish exorcist. They're the sons of a Jewish high priest. They are hot stuff. And they're thinking they've got this new secret weapon in their back pocket. Can't wait to try it out. They fire off those words with selfish ambition. I order you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. But then reality sets in. This demon-possessed man is unfazed. And he's starting to walk closer and closer. And now he is nose to nose. I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul. But who are you? These hotshot sons of Sceva now realize they've made a critical error. Verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit pounced on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I love the way the NIV translated it. It says, he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. These celebrity boys got their butts kicked. Lesson learned. The power of Jesus is not summoned or granted by simply saying his name. Even the demons believe and shudder. The abilities of God above move through the vehicle of faith. When we need not look any further than our own salvation, for you were saved by grace through faith. We are heirs according to promise through faith. Now our story continues, verse 17. This became known to all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. So as one might expect, seven sons of a high priest getting beat up by a demon-possessed man running out of a house naked, yeah, it makes front news page. In Ephesus, everyone knew about it. And the response of the people, the response of the Ephesians was fear. 
but God fear. That fear when you recognize there are forces at play beyond you, a fear that causes you to fall on your face before the one who always has been, the fear of the Lord. And out of that fear, they were magnifying the name of the Lord Jesus. But it doesn't just stop there. Look at verse 18. And many who had come, who had become believers, came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. A revival is occurring, a revival especially within the community of people who practice magic. And to the degree that they are bringing their books would have been their livelihood, their tools of the trade. They're bringing them forward and burning them. 50,000 pieces of silver worth. In today's money, that would have been millions and millions and millions of dollars of worth of these people's livelihood going up in smoke. A holy smoke. A sacrifice truly pleasing to the Lord. A sacrifice as proof of their faith. And I wish I could have been in Ephesus at that moment because it would have been an incredible culmination of events, a culmination of the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of the people strewn across that city. Because remember, Paul, Paul had been there. Paul had been in Ephesus for two years. And in that time, we're told that all had heard the word of the Lord. They have heard the gospel message. Some have come to believe, some haven't but they know. They have the facts. And for two years, they've watched and heard Paul preach and heal, do miracles through the power of this Jesus. And all the knowledge was there. Like seeds planted in soil, they just now needed the rain to initiate the growth. And as a person who practiced magic in Ephesus, you would have likely been keenly in the loop on what Paul was up to. The months would go by, and I'm sure it was common, uh, possibly a coworker would knock on your door. Hey, did you hear what Paul was up to yesterday? Healed another cripple. And you would shake your head in jealousy. Paul's direct, direct competition for your line of work. Another week would go by, and maybe you were in the, in the marketplace, and you'd overhear conversation, two people talking, yeah, Paul says it's through the power of Jesus that we can be saved. Maybe, maybe you're in a home with someone. Maybe a mother has asked you to heal her ailing daughter, and you're there trying to heal. You're being paid for your services, and you're working over this child, but it's not going as fast or as the mother had predicted, as she had expected. And she's becoming impatient. impatient. She blurts out, uh, maybe we should just get Paul. Or can, can you just use the power of Jesus? Now you've had it. You are sick and tired of hearing about this Jesus. And you're especially pissed because it works. There is something in this Jesus that is able to do far more abundantly than anything you've been able to do. And you've had it. It's been two years of seeing this. So you storm out of the mother's house cursing this Jesus. You start pacing down the street in a small voice invades your thoughts. It says, why don't you come to me? And you can't even believe it, but you're about to do this. You're going to talk back. You're going to speak to that voice that you have sworn off. 
doesn't exist, you're gonna talk back to this God that you've believed was never really there. And as all the reasons you've counted God off rise up in your mind, they're all in a sudden moment overwhelmed by the flood of memories of Paul's words over the past two years. Like a flashback, it comes to you. You remember when Paul first came into town and a group of men were allegedly indwelt by a Holy Spirit. They began prophesying and speaking in other languages, not their own. You remember Paul saying this Holy Spirit was given as an inheritance, a guarantee of an inheritance for a life after this one. You remember Paul saying some of the most outlandish things, like you're dead in your sins, but Jesus can make you alive. And you remember the hundreds of miracles of healing that Paul had done with his incessant tagline, healing comes by faith, salvation comes by Jesus. And make sure you remember when Paul said, you are saved by grace through faith. And then you remember the most cutting words you ever heard Paul say. The ones that made you swear him off because he was talking about you. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. And as you continue to storm down the path, you see up ahead a cloud of smoke rising from the district square. One of your fellow brothers in the arts runs past you, bumps you on the shoulder. He's headed for the smoke and he's carrying all of his books of incantation. And then more people start running by you. There's a commotion ahead, but it sounds joyful. And so you start running, trying to figure out what is going on and you enter the square and you see hundreds and hundreds of people. There's an enormous pile of books that's on fire, it's huge belays. And then you start recognizing dozens and dozens of your brothers and sisters in the sorcery. They're all here. They're all throwing their books on the fire. One of them runs up to you and grabs you by the shoulders. Did you hear? Did you hear? No, what? The seven sons of Sceva. <laughs> they tried to go cast out the demon in the West District. They tried to implore the name of Jesus and Paul. Can you believe that? They don't even believe in Paul. They don't even believe in Jesus. Well, the, the demon that beat them up. All seven of them. They ran out of the house naked. And you ask, your brain's just spinning. You ask, what, is this, what does this mean? What does it mean? It means Paul, what he's been saying all along. It's true. It means Jesus does have the power. He's the only one with the power. But it's like Paul said, brother, you have to believe. Think of everything that Paul said about Jesus. Doesn't it make sense now? And your head is going a million miles a minute. There's chaos all around you and in your head and in your heart. But then you remember one last thing Paul said. It was right after he told you you were dead in your sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, 
he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. I wish I could have been there to see it. I'm so thankful Luke recorded this moment of what God did in Ephesus. The story concludes with this verse. So the word of the Lord was growing and prevailing mightily. Well, it most certainly was, but Luke's word choice here in this summary of what took place is, I think, very intentional. But we have to, for a moment, look at the actual Greek words Luke used to see another contrast in this story. I think it's the key contrast Luke is making. When Luke says the word, the Lord prevailed mightily, he uses the Greek word, Eskio. It's a verb. It means to be able, able to overpower, able to control. Back in Mark 5, this word is used. It's used in a story of Jesus casting out a demon. In this story, it also hinges on this word, Eskio. It says this, and this won't be on the screen. They came, this is Jesus and his disciples, they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met Jesus. He lived in the tombs and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And the evil spirit begged Jesus earnestly, do not send me from this region. A large herd of pigs was nearby feeding on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned there. In this story, when it says no one was strong enough to subdue this man, that no one was able, Mark uses the word eskio. No one was eskio. So now we go back to Acts 19. We find the seven sons of Sceva in a similar situation. They're confronting a demon. And Luke tells us the demon eskioed them. All seven of them. And what's interesting is the next time we see that word used, eskio, it's just a few verses later. It's at the end of this story. It's the last line. So the word of the Lord was growing and eskioing mightily. I think Luke's use of this word is quite deliberate. He's trying to highlight his main point. What is this story and why is it here? This story is about seven men who likely filled with their own pride and selfish ambition, decide to attempt to leverage the name of Jesus for their own interests. 
their vain pursuits run up against evil itself, a demon-possessed man. And this demon, with orders from his master to oppress and terrorize, does what he does best, destroy. He attacks the men, badly hurting them. And I wonder, what did this demon possibly think when these seven men selfishly called on the name of Jesus and Paul? What an opportunity. I'm going to beat you to a bloody mess, and this whole city will know that calling on the name of Jesus and this Paul is meaningless and void. It is not Abel. It is not Eschio. So in one hand, you have the selfish ambition of man, and in the other, the demonic interests of Satan. And the utter, vile trash that each of them independently are, they smash together. And what comes of it? More death? More vile garbage? More darkness? No. Redemption. Hope. Healing. Saving faith. Luke shows us the overwhelming eschio of our God. Our God is able. And this is what our God does best. He takes the worst of sin and its effects and turns it into salvation. So Luke was right to start with. God was performing extraordinary miracles. He sure was. Our God is eschio. He is infinitely able to, col- to take the collective evil pursuits of, and goals of man and Satan and create redemption out of them. And through that masterpiece, show us that salvation comes by faith. So I ask you, what in your life right now or what in your past seeks to question God's redeeming abilities? Do you feel like you're caught in the crosshairs of someone's selfish ambition? Do you feel a heavy weight of oppression? Is it really dark? Maybe some abuse in your past? Or maybe it's not what's happening to you, but what's happening to someone you love. It's a parent or a friend or a child. That child is in a dark place. They're not making good choices. They're believing lies. And you need so desperately to hear from your Savior, just a reminder that he is able. This story is for you this morning. Your Savior, your champion, he has overcome death and all the powers of darkness. He is able. He is able to use all things. Look what he did in Ephesus. And he's able to do it again and again and again. He loves to. It's actually his specialty. He takes the worst, creates the best. It's his bread and butter. Have faith in him. Run to him. Trust him. Call out to him. I think of our good friend, Joseph, from Genesis. He went through many dark times to be able to say to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. If he is right now knocking on the door of your heart, don't delay. Go open it. And if you don't know how to do that, come talk to me. Let's do it together. 
I want to conclude with some, some words from one of my favorite people, Corey Ten Boom. If you don't know Corey, uh, she was a Dutch watchmaker. She helped Jews escape the clutch of Nazi Germany, and for her work, she was captured and placed into a concentration camp called Ravensbrück. She survived her experience and went on to travel the globe, evangelizing to many. This is one of her stories. I had spoken in many prisons in my travels across the world, but the prison in Rwanda, Africa, was the dreariest, darkest prison I had ever seen. The men were all black. Their uniforms were black. They were sitting in the mud on the ground. I had just entered the prison gate with my interpreter, a missionary lady. Steam, the aftermath of a hard tropical rain, was rising from the ground. The men were sitting on pieces of paper, branches, banana leaves, their legs caked with mud up to their knees. Why don't we go into the building? I asked my interpreter. Impossible, she whispered, obviously afraid of the men. There are so many prisoners that even during the night, only half of them can go inside. I looked at their faces. Like their skin, their eyes were dark. It was a look I had seen so many times in Ravensbrook. The look of those whose hope had died. Unhappiness, despair, hopelessness, anger. How could I speak to them? What could I, an old Dutch woman, say to these miserable men that would help their lives? Lord, I prayed, I am not able to overcome this darkness. Take my promise of Galatians 5.22, I heard an inner voice say. Quickly, I took my Bible and opened it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Oh, thank you, Lord, I whispered. But I have great love for these men already, or I would not be here. I read on. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy? I asked. And these surroundings? Then I remembered what Nehemiah said. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Yes, Lord, I cried out. This is what I need. That is what I claim. I claim the promise of joy. Even as I spoke the words, I felt a wonderful, lifting sensation in my heart. It was joy. More joy than I had ever felt. It poured like a river out of my inner being. Like the rising tide, it covered the salt flats of my depression and turned the ugly mud of despair into a shimmering lagoon of blessedness. Moments later, I was introduced to the prisoners who all sat staring at me in hatred. The steam rose around them and the stinging insects swarmed their mud-coked ankles and legs. I began to talk of the joy that is ours when we know Jesus. What a friend we have in him. He is always with us. When we are depressed, he gives us joy. When we do wrong, he gives us the strength to be good. When we hate, he fills us with forgiveness. When we are afraid, he causes us to love. Several faces changed, and I saw that some of the joy was spilling over on them. But I knew what the rest were thinking. After you talk, you can go home. Away from this muddy, stinking prison. It's easy to talk about joy when you're free. But we must stay here. Then I told them a story. Morning roll call at Ravensbrook. It was often the hardest time of the day. By 4.30 a.m., we had to be standing outside our barracks in the black pre-dawn chill in blocks of 100 women, 10 wide, 10 deep. Names were never used in the concentration camp. 
It was part of the plan to dehumanize the prisoners, to take away their dignity of life, their worth before God and man. I was simply known as prisoner 66730. Roll call sometimes lasted three hours. And every day the sun rose a little later and the icy cold wind blew a little stronger. And standing in the gray of the dawn, I would try to repeat through shivering lips that verse of scripture which had come to mean so much to me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. In all this, there was an overwhelming victory through Jesus who had proved his love for me by dying on the cross. But there came a time when repeating the words did not help. I needed more. Oh, God, I prayed, reveal yourself somehow. Then one morning, the woman directly in front of me, she sank to the ground. In a moment, a young woman guard was standing over here, a whip in her hand. Get up, she screamed in a rage. How dare you think you can lie down when everyone else is standing? I could hardly bear to see what was happening in front of me. Surely this is the end of us all, I thought. Then suddenly, a skylark started to sing high in the sky. This sweet, pure notes of the bird rose on the still cold air. Every head turned upward, away from the carnage before us, listening to the song of the skylark soaring over the crematorium. The words of the psalmist ran through my mind. For as high as heaven is above the earth, so great is his mercies towards them that fear him. I looked out over the men who were sitting in front of me. No longer were their faces filled with darkness and anger. They were listening intently, for they were hearing from someone who had walked where they were now walking. I continued. There in that prison, I saw things from God's point of view. The reality of God's love was just as sure as the cruelty of men. O love of God, how deep and great, far deeper than man's deepest hate. And every morning for the next three weeks, just as the time of roll call, the skylark appeared. In his sweet song, I heard the call of God to turn my eyes away from the cruelty of men to the ocean of God's love. And although I was speaking through an interpreter, God's spirit was working through both of us. I saw joy appearing on the faces of nearly all the men sitting before me. Say, men, I said, do you know Jesus is willing to live in your hearts? He says, I stand. <laughs> I didn't realize I had that in my, <laughs> I didn't realize I used that verse in my passage and I just see it here. <sighs> I stand at the door of your heart and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I come in. Just think, that same Jesus loves you and will live in your heart and give you joy in the midst of all this mud. Who is willing? Raise his hand. I looked around. All the men, including the guards, had raised their hands. It was unbelievable, but their faces showed a joy that only the Holy Spirit could produce. As I left the prison and returned to the car, all the men accompanied me. The guards did not seem worried or anxious that they swarmed around me. In fact, they didn't even prevent them from going out the gate to stand around my car. As I opened the door and got in, the men began to shout and chant something, repeating the same words over and over. What do they shout? I asked my interpreter. She smiled and said, they shout, old woman, come back. Old woman, come back and tell us more of Jesus. 
the missionary turned to me as we drove off. I must confess to you that I thought this place was too dark for the light of the gospel. I'd been here once before and was so frightened I said I would never come back. Now, because I had to come interpret for you, I have seen what the Holy Spirit can do. The joy of the Lord is available even for such a place as this. From now on, I shall return every week to tell them about Jesus. Months later, I received, received a letter from her in which she said, the fear is gone, the joy remains. Pray with me. Father, you are infinitely able. And because you're infinitely able, you have prune, proven yourself to stand alone. There is none like you. You take, you take all of the garbage of sin, every shred of darkness in this world, and you can turn it into joy, love, peace. All of the fruits of the Spirit can be poured out by you, even in dark, dark places. So, Father, I pray this morning that if there be any among us that's in a dark place, they, like Corey, would claim joy as a promise from you. And they, through that joy, would rejoice in the promises that you have given us, the promise of light and life. God, now as we, as we come to rejoice again, to lift our voices to you, I pray we would sing from hearts, remembering that you did that very thing in each one of us, that you took our own brokenness, you took our own darkness, and through faith, you have turned it into hope and healing and one day everlasting life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.